Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Stephen, welcome to the War Room. All right. Thank you for having me. So uh, this is this is the War Room, huh? This is it. This is it. Don't tell anyone <laughs> where it's at, but this is it. You are now here. Um, can, you okay, fight? You, can, you, can you fight in the War Room or is you it? Can, uh, you can. You can. You can. Okay. You, we try to keep, keep okay. it somewhat... You know, no knives and guns, but but hand-to-hand combat is allowed. Um, and so <laughs> if it comes to that. Okay, so you have just published, uh, as we sit here today, a little over a month ago, a book called The Case for Christian Nationalism. Uh, in some circles, it's obviously gotten um, a lot of attention. And probably for other circles, it's not even on the radar. So let's unpack what Christian nationalism is, why you wrote this book in 2022, um, and is this a topic that you've been concerned with for some time or is it more of a series of events that led you to this book? Okay. Is that the first question? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah go, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so the, uh, I, I haven't, uh, considered myself a Christian nationalist, um, for, I guess, most of my life. It was a, that, that is, that, that is, I have not. Um, and, uh, the, when I first heard that the term, I don't know if it was 2020 or 2019, I don't remember exactly. I think it was, uh, I, 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 my, my initial impulse, like a good conservative was to say, I'm not a Christian nationalist. I mean, that's what conservatives do, right? You're accused of something and you think you automatically say, no, I'm not that. Of course not. I'm not that. Why, how dare you? Um, but then when you start thinking about it, um, I start thinking about it. I was like, well, I'm a Christian and uh, I'm a nationalist and I want my nation to be Christian. And I want some kind of civil government uh, and cultural aspect to this such that it would be Christian nationalism. And so I started thinking, wait, wait, I, I am a Christian nationalist. And why is that term uh, scary? Uh, and I think there's several reasons for why it's scary, um, but uh, it shouldn't be scary to to Christians who uh, want to see their country um, Christian and uh, and try to preserve and, and order itself to the highest good. Uh, and so I started thinking, yeah, you know what? I, I think that uh, even though it's a term of derision and it's pejorative, I think it's a, a term that can be reclaimed and unpacked. And so uh, I wrote the book in a way to kind of unpack what what that would be, uh, at least to my pers- from my perspective, what uh, Christian nationalism uh, would look like. And so that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, one of the main reasons why uh, I wrote the book. You, you touched on something there about being a conservative and responding to something to me, um, as someone who does not consider himself a conservative any longer, that was part of the reason, um, I left being associated with conservatives. And part of the reason I critique them today is they seem to have collectively an inability to hear a full argument and to slice off the margin that is actually right, uh, respond to that in agreement, and then deal with maybe the the bad part of the argument. What is it about conservatives that makes them so reactionary that they can't see the forest of the trees? 
Well, I don't think they're reactionary. I think most conservatives nowadays are just a form of liberal. Um, but the, it's more than that. I think conservatives are addicted to losing. Uh, and that's they're they're essentially losers. And conservatism has become a, a loser uh, political. I don't even want to call it thought. That, that, I mean, there are venerable conservatives, and I I, uh, I I think you can you can identify people like Russell Kirk and others, um, and as as uh, great conservatives of of the American tradition and, and also in the British tradition. Uh, but the but the conservatives today, it's uh, they they have very high lofty moral principles, but in the end, um, they're they cause them to lose. And which means if you always lose, then there's probably something wrong with your principles, uh, because that's not um, how God uh, authorized government to uh, authorize government to bring about what is good and to punish what is evil. And if you can't accomplish that, well, then you have the wrong principles. So, um, but yeah, that, that's uh, that's the spirit and impulse of a conservative today is to uh, manage decline and. And that's, I think that's true even among uh, people, uh, among Christians who would call themselves conservatives, is they have uh, the, this perspective uh, that, that the, the actual instruments that God authorized for us to, to um, praise what's good and punish what's evil are uh, essentially rejected or critiqued or, or they're considered illiberal or, or, or whatever. Um, and so they've adopted a, a, li- a liberal frame and a liberal mindset and then they call themselves the principled ones uh, when the left does or is not principled. Uh, the, the left is consumed by the taking of power at all costs um, or not just all costs, but, uh, but using any means necessary. And uh, so you have then on the conservatives on one side who are committed to these uh, in, in their totality, absurd set of principles that force them to lose in the face of the left while the left has no principles um, other than, uh, other than achieving power. Uh, by any means necessary. And so they win. Um, so, I mean, there's other factors to this as well, but yeah, I, I join you in saying that, that we should reject conservatism because for several reasons, one being, well, okay, what are we conserving? We want to go back to 1990s liberalism. Is that what we're trying to bring back? Like are we nostalgic for our, our eighties childhood or something like that, which I am a little bit, but <laughs> that doesn't mean that's yeah. where I want to go back to. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, there are several reasons, and um, but I, I think we should look beyond that and look for a sort of renewal, that uh, a renewal philosophy in theology that isn't trying to hold on to the you know the already dead uh, aspects of '90s or early 2000 liberalisms or the the adventurism of the of George W. Bush or whatever, that sort of thing, where the um, but uh, but but um, respects the past, but also looks forward and, and sees a sort of renewal uh, that we can uh, pursue. So, so a minute ago you said that you're a Christian and you're a nationalist, therefore a Christian nationalist. What would separate a Christian nationalist from an atheistic nationalist or an agnostic nationalist or a, a Buddhist nationalist? What would be the difference between uh, what you're espousing in these different categories? Yeah, I, mean, I think a Christian nationalist. Uh, I mean, well, I, the way I present in the book is I, I give a generic definition of nationalism. That's uh, that uh, you know, in, in a way, like you could say, one that's suitable for nature or all all humankind prior to prior to grace or not or prior to like prior to the gospel. What would be nationalism if if none of us kind of if all we had were to operate just based upon nature itself? Um, and I think an atheistic one would be a corrupted nationalism, as would anything else. Uh, but nationalism, uh, and that's because you know, 
obvious reasons atheism would would produce a sort of feverishness for this, this world and and all these ideologies and all this but uh maybe like sort of communism but like generic nationalism to my mind is just uh according to nature would just be a people group uh, identifying uh, um, a, a people a people group who, uh, who who see themselves as a people and want to order themselves and arrange their institutions and their culture for their good and that good would be both earthly and heavenly so I, I do think even in in generic nationalism there is that principle where a nation you know a nation just according to the cre- just creational principles is something where they ought to arrange themselves for a higher something beyond this world. Um, and so that's that. So I think that this idea that you should orient yourself as a people to eternal life is something inherent to nature itself and the nature of a, uh, the nature of a nation. And so that's just generic nationalism. Whereas Christian nationalism is, is that idea of nationalism, but informed by the things of grace. And so the, the things that are, you could say adventitious or above nature, uh, such as the means, the 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 in a, in a way the new means to eternal life in Christ, um, that the the uh, that that now informs the way to eternal life, and so Christian nationalism is is nationalism Christianized. Uh, it's uh, and and it's it's the only form of true nationalism now in light of grace, because the only way to actually for a nation to orient itself to the true eternal life um, is in Christ. Uh, and so that's so so Christian nationalism in that sense is is true nationalism um, in light of the gospel. OK, so let's talk about what is a nation then, because this is a question that I think gets overlooked quite often. If you look at the United States, obviously, we have 48 that are all here. We've got two that are way far off. Um, you look at how the map has been drawn over the past century, or century plus. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of that has to do with war or top down authoritarian authoritarian authoritative power, um, Treaty of Versailles, stuff like that. How do we know, or how would you define, rather, what, what is a nation and then what makes a nation worth preserving? Because some could argue that, well, this nation was formed by some dudes in a room and or some war that happened, and it's not really a nation, but someone somewhere claims it is to be a nation. Yeah, so when I, when I talk about nations, I, I'm not so much talking about the idea of a modern nation state. Um, uh, so modern nation state would be the idea that you, you call a nation a nation based upon the fact that these people are within like a legal jurisdiction, like they're within a state so that anyone, anyone in there who has, who is, who identify, who has, uh, some, um, who, who's declared like a citizen or subject of that state is therefore, therefore part of the nation. And so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that in itself, but that's not what I'm, what I mean by nation, but by nation, I mean, and I define this in the book, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's a people who have a, a, uh, a generational ties to the place and to each other. Uh, um, and yeah, so in, in a certain place with other people, and that doesn't necessarily mean uh, like a genetic similarity. So what I do not mean by this is that, you can identify a nation as if like you could just take the genetic background of people and, and, and uh, put the, put it up on a wall and say, okay, you guys are part of this nation. You guys are part of that nation. That's not what I mean. So it's not a genetic thing. It's far more of a, I think an experiential or, or I have this approach. It's like all phenomenological approach to it where it's 
you identify with a certain people because you've existed generationally going back, you know, generations in this place with others. And so one, one example I've used is that, you know, it's like your, your grandfather and my grandfather might've participated in the same war, like, you know, like world war two uh, was this very kind of unifying event that I think now has waned entirely, uh, not entirely, but in, in, in a way that the unifying effort and struggle of world war two was unifying in the early decades. And uh, now it's kind of slipped away. I think the civil war in, in a part in a, in a way was like that as well. Um, despite of course, animosities between North and South, but you see like Teddy Roosevelt appealing um, to the, this sort of effort in the civil war for unifying. And then, and then, then he's saying, well, the reason we need the civil war as a unifying aspect is because we go back to the revolutionary war. Yeah, the founding generation was this unifying uh, thing. Anyway, so it's almost as if we're due for another national struggle, by the way. I mean, if you think about this, uh, if if there is that theme of unifying wars, it seems like we're, we're due for one. Um, but anyway, that's a different story. But um, but yeah, so I, I, I see it much more along those lines of common struggles, common spirit, that's sort of like the the people, if you looked around, like t- take like, like Ukraine right now, um, when when the Ukraine Russian war broke out, a lot of people fled west. I mean, a lot of Ukrainians did too, but uh, but a lot of people who were foreign, essentially foreigners to Ukraine, they left. Like they're like, well, this isn't my war. This isn't my place. I'm out of here. So they got on the train and they got on the planes and they left. So when I think of nation, what one way to think about it is who if you know if. Uh, if the you know it hits the fan and all that, and we have to fight and have a struggle with against another opposing people, who's going to be in the foxhole with you, and who's going to flee? Who's going to go to their other country? Who's going to go? Who has nowhere else to go? Um, and I think those are the sort of people you can uh, one indication of who's in in your nation. Um, so, um, I it's it's not like uh, like people don't. I, I've been criticized on this front because they think that that. I should be able to identify the nation as if it's like a, like a chemistry equation or something like that. Like it's uh, I could, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But I don't, I don't think that's what you can, you can only, you can only identify, identify something uh, to, to the extent that the thing allows itself to be identified. So if there's things on the margins, it's like when, when does like a desert, become like a, a forest. I mean, if you, in California, if you drive from the desert into, into Yosemite area, at what point does it become a forest? Which you can, if you drive North, you'll go, um, at what point are you in the forest? Uh, it's harder to define. Um, and I think the nation is also like that. You're going to have some differences within nations. Um, but then it's, I think you can identify a certain core to it. Um, anyway, that, that's kind of a long answer. Probably won't satisfy everyone who wants like a geometric equation, <laughs> some geometry or cultural geography. Like I, when I took cultural geography in, in, in college, I, I, I saw a map and it said, these are, these people are here and these people are there. And right. um, I don't think so that's it, the right maybe, way to I mean, approach the idea of a nation in, in our own experience. I mean, you know, cultural geographers can do that if they want. Okay. So maybe let me ask this to you then to see if I understood. So I'm in Hood County, Texas. Um, and if for some reason there was a big binding event, um, insert catastrophe here that rallied the, the folks of Hood County, that might be what you're speaking of. And whatever the makeup of Hood County is would be bound by this common event. But then if it spread out to 
the larger state of Texas, we theoretically could be bound together, maybe not as tightly, but as on some level because there was a war that Texas had to fight or whatever. Um, but then also it could creep up to the to the south or potentially the whole U.S. because at, at some level, um, me and someone in California might not be as tightly bound because of, of proximity issues, but the causal event um, would unify us, maybe like a 9-11. And so it, would that be a good way that, it, that, that, you're, that you're thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, that's something, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I, like even New York City, like in 9-11, um, that people still appeal to this idea of helping each other as a way to unify the city. Um, mm-hmm. so, but yeah, the, yeah, I, I think there, there are common struggles. Like that's one, just one aspect of kind of the, the formation of it. I mean, and people say, well, this isn't like, this is not how America uh, thinks of itself. But I mean, if you look at read like George Washington's farewell address and, uh, what, what is he saying? He's saying, uh, we are, I mean, the, 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 the question in the founding era was, okay, are we, are we going to form a strong national government or be very kind of, you know, like a state centric type confederation. And of course we had the confederation, but then the, at, after Washington's farewell address is like, okay, here's the, here's the guy, the personality that held it all together. Here's George Washington. He's about to leave and retire. You know, he wanted to retire oh. before all this, but he wanted to, he says, I'm retiring. This is it. Um, and he said, so he's thinking, what's going to keep these people together? Uh, it can't be me anymore. And, uh, is you got John Adams showing up, but he can't keep anyone together. So, um, but you know, you, you have a, a what he says in his farewell address is that in, near the end, he says we're, we're we have common cultural similarities. Uh, we and we fought in this war together. Like there was a sense of we had a common struggle as a people, and so we can be. You can be Virginian. You can be from Massachusetts, Connecticut, <clears throat> whatever. But we had this common struggle. We are actually one people. So. The, 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 in, a, in a way, there was like a uh, the argument, and they don't use the term, would be like a sort of ethnogenesis that occurred at the time. You see the same thing in uh, John Jay says it in the the second essay in the Federalist Papers. He says we have common language, common religion, common this and that. So he's talking about cultural similarities, and he also mentions we ha- we fought and won a war together. So this this mm-hmm. theme of like this national thing that was brought us all together, and so we can actually form this federal union, the anti-federalists are wrong. We actually do have mm-hmm. significant common experience such that we can call each other. We can have this sort of civil fellowship in this robust national, um, that national union. And so my, my point is that, that that same idea is embedded in American tradition. And that can be true for us today. And it has been within in, in different areas, different times. Um, so, and, and so, so, yeah, that, uh, yeah, I would say that for at, at surface level, it would be hard for anyone, I think, to disagree with that 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 framework because even post World War II, uh, for a long period of time, when when we went to Iraq, you know, we appealed to historic allies to go with us, right? And so there's a sense of commonality. Uh, and Americans were disappointed if certain nations didn't align with us because of uh, a shared history in World War II. Um, and we don't trust certain nations because of that. And so even outside of our borders in this broader landscape where we don't even share a, a neighboring, <laughs> we don't even touch these countries. Um, there is a sense in which, um, we do feel a common struggle if you use World war two. Uh, and so I can see that playing itself out practically, um, on a local level, um, especially extreme local level. Um, another thing is, is that it's quite often that, that governments use propaganda of existential threats 
to unite people, right? So this is the greatest threat. Um, we hear this all the time. Uh, and they, they're using that to um, obviously strike fear into people, but also to make sure that those people don't stray and go somewhere else or think about a, a different alternative. Uh, you see this with top-down regimes, but we see it here in the U.S. as well. So to me, these are these topics, th- this, this framework um, on some level seems to be pretty basic, at least on how, how society should, how society does work. Um, what's been the biggest pushback against this framework? Uh, I, people have, well, um, people have misread it and, and accused it of being, I don't know, they throw it around the word racist and all that. Um, uh, the, yeah, I, that, that's been the main thing, just, just kind of a misreading of what I, I'm saying. But I think, I mean, no, that's fine. I, I, that, that's, that's bound to happen. And it's bound to happen because within the West, we have this, we are extremely sensitive about these sorts of things. That anything that violates a very universal frame of mind, that anything that violates the idea that the West is this universal geographic space fit for everyone to come here and, and that's it. Um, anything that violates that makes people very uncomfortable and, uh, psychologically. So even, even like anyone listening now, I said, he, He's saying that not that this world land is not fit to come here. Well, yeah, you're, I'm saying it's not. And when I say that it makes people uncomfortable. And I think that in that moment, when it makes you uncomfortable, you should critique that and say, well, you know what, why do I make, why do I psychologically feel weird about that? But, uh, but people aren't, don't reflect on that. They don't reflect on their reactions to things like that, that because I mean, they've been deeply socialized into, into being very universalistic in their, their, their way that the West is this universal space for fit for all instead of for actually particular peoples. Uh, and so it makes people uncomfortable. And I, and part of the things that people should, instead of critiquing me, they should critique themselves and say, well, you know what, M- maybe we ought to be like everyone else in the world and, and have a, uh, have a particular love for people in place. Um, but then they hear that and they think I'm talking about white nationalism, which I explicitly deny. And, uh, my, that what I state in the book is actually antithetical to that. So, um, it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult thing because I think we are so, uh, mentally enmeshed in this deeply egalitarian and universalistic frame that you can't actually have these discussions. And, uh, and, and if you do, you have to begin the discussion with like a series of, of, um, <laughs> disclaimers and disavowals and, and, uh, and I, I don't do that. Like nowhere in the book, I, I think in one footnote, I say it's, it's not white nationalism. And I say that not, not to do the whole disavowal game, but simply so that, that people understand that my approach is not flowing from this racial principle. It's not as if, again, it's not, let's take a DNA test and see who fits into my nation. Like, that's not at all mm-hmm. what I'm saying. And uh, like it, I'm saying that in your own experience, uh, who is going like who is part of your people group, and those people can be of different ancestry. But that also does mean that some people are not your people group; that they are in a way um, they're like in a way your out group, not necessarily like a and like a like a uh, that you should dislike them or something. But but there are people in and out, and uh, I think people in the West just have to come to grips with that uh, and get over themselves and lighten up. Um, and I think we would be much better for that. And uh, the, yeah, anyway, I could keep going on on about this. You know, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think wherever you come in on this issue, Americans should ask a question 
if you live in San Francisco or uh, the most conservative county in the United States, how much authority does either group want that group to have over it? Because they aren't shared experiences. They don't have shared values necessarily. And they are for all intents and purposes. Um, and, and so that has nothing to do with a, a racial mix up. It has to do with a, um, as, as you're saying. And so you could change the racial dynamics and, and, and come to different conclusions. Um, but that's, but, but to your point, you said critique, critique yourself. I would not be a good fit in China. Okay. I, I'm well aware <laughs> of that. I'm not a communist. I don't support communist practice. I would not last long there. I've got a big mouth. Um, uh, and so I've been there. I think it's a great place, but I would not fit there. So I can understand me not fitting in there. But the question you pose is, should everyone fit in here? And to that, I go, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because when you say here, here's a big place again, right? So I don't have a, a defined geographic area that we're talking about or defined um, a spot that I could say, hey, this is our space. Um, and so when you say here, I think part of the problem is when you say, you know, um, is a Chinese national, in this case, who is a, you know, a, a devout communist that wants to come to the U.S., um, there's probably parts in the U.S. where they would fit in, um, perhaps not where I live. Um, but so how do you, how, when you're saying that, that, that it's not a good fit, perhaps, um, is that because they could come and change the, the makeup of, of, this, of this group? Uh, it's, uh, well, there's a, it's not that, that on the individual level, of course, no, no one's going to be able to change, uh, anything. And in fact, on the individual level, people can, can come here and, uh, intermarry and, and, uh, become essentially, uh, Americans, um, in their common experience, because again, it's not based upon any kind of genetic makeup, but if you have, uh, waves and waves of people, uh, to, who come here. And they're all from one ethnicity, and they all group together in one uh, ethnicity. Then, then in the end, this universal space becomes a place for people's own ethnic uh, enclaves. And this has certainly been the, this is certainly the case in Europe. Uh, in Europe, this has been it's very clear, especially from Muslim immigration, that they have no interest in becoming, generally speaking, becoming Western. They, they are Muslims from their own ethnic background, and that's what they're going to be when they get here. They're going to teach their kids to be that when they get here. Uh, that, that is there. And, and, like, and so this is why you have, uh, you have these ethnic isolated places in, in uh, Sweden and Norway and, uh, and France and other places. And uh, there's just simply no assimilation. America is better at, at assimilation um, but if, eventually, there's a, a critical mass where if uh, if uh, if if, you, if enough people come over here, and I think this has already happened, you simply don't get the sort of assimilation into an, an American life anymore, uh, and it's uh, just self reinforcing um, along those lines. And then, and people teach their own their own um, essentially their own ethnicity. And, I, and and there's I think there's there's more there's also political reasons too, and that uh, I. I would. I think that conservatives should want immigration that will support their political causes. And uh, it's and it, the fact of the matter is that the most immigrants nowadays come to the United States and they support Democrats. Uh, there, there's a sense in which oh they're they're come they come from conservative countries they should be natural Republican voters. Well, of course that's false and that has never happened because the Democrats uh, are will 
will essentially uh, provide the sort of government services, the, the material goods that uh, these people um, enjoyed within their own home countries. And so that's what they're interested in. That's what they're going to vote for. And that's why conservatives don't actually see um, minority voters who are socially conservative vote for them. And so we should, we should absolutely not want people who are going to vote against uh, conservative, the conservative politics. Uh, and uh, that's so, I mean, that's, and, uh, and, and to, to my mind to, to vote for, for the, the Democrats is to vote, against an older conception of America. And so in a way it's, it's opposed to America itself. Um, and so I, that, 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 that's a basis, at least for me to, to restrict immigration significantly. Um, so that, that, that's one reason. I mean, so yeah, ethnic enclaves, and then there's the, 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 the fundamental changing of United States. Yeah. So what would you say to someone who goes, um, yeah, okay, sure what you're saying is is true, but there's a large portion of the country that desires this. So therefore, talking about shared experiences, commonalities, they actually want this to happen. Therefore, we should endorse it. Uh, Well, it says they, I mean, yeah. So New Yorkers, they they like diversity um, and well, they they can have it. But the problem is they, they don't live on the Southern border. And so that this means that their policies, the, the power of, the New York, you know, New York city base. Um, the rest of New York is not actually as liberal, but of course the city is New York city. Um, they, they have their policies and their views and perspectives. And so do the, some of the, the coasts on like the new England itself, but then who gets subjective to the subjected to the massive wave of immigration? Well, it's the Southern States who don't particularly want it. So, yeah. I mean, if, if New England wants uh, diversity, I, I, I'm all for putting immigrants on, um, the immigrants want to be here, you ship them to New England. And put, put them, with the, with, but then, but then that's not fair too. So I, I lived in New Jersey for a while and you think New Jersey is a super liberal state, but if you drive away from Trenton and, you know, like the liberals at Princeton and, and, uh, and some of the other cities there, and you just drive out in the country, there's just regular conservative people you could, you, you would, um, who vote, who, who love the United States um, just as much as you do. So it's, it's really a, a sad situation, but um, I mean, if, if yeah, if, if they want it, then they should, they should be the ones who have it and, and get it and face the consequences of it. But they don't, I mean, yeah. that's the problem. That, that's the thing with like rich, like wealthy white liberals uh, is that they actually don't bear the cost of their own policies and they never do. Uh, so that they're the ones who, who who get married and actually, I mean, it's kind of changed, but it's the, generally speaking, the, the the wealthy white liberals get married, have kids, kids go to the good colleges, do generally better than than everyone else, but their policies themselves destroy marriage, um, um, incentivize abortion, uh, and, and and these other things that, that are detrimental to people that 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 have to are um, who face the consequences of bad policies. Okay, and then the other thing what people might say is, you know, America is a country of immigrants. And so we're talking about 2022 with a country full of people. It's not full, but spread out people at least. Um, that came from foreign people with different ethnic backgrounds and different beliefs um, coming to the U.S. and moving across and settling, and that's all changed. Why is it, was it bad then? And, is it, and what has changed if, to make it bad now if it, if it wasn't bad then? Well, I think the idea that we're a nation of immigrants is just false. I mean, yeah, I have, uh, 
I, I guess in a way that if you go back far enough, we're all immigrants. Um, but that would be true for everyone. <laughs> everyone eventually came to the place they're at uh, in, in, in some respect. And uh, I, I think to be an immigrant is a matter of, of experience, not a matter, a matter of just looking into your family history. Yeah. I mean, I have a, my, my closest immigrant would be in, in my family would be a, a grandmother, a, um, a great grandmother who was from Italy. Everyone else is either from uh, 19th century or earlier, but I have no experience of being an immigrant. I've always just been American. I was born here. I'm a native American, meaning that I'm native. I was born here. Uh, and so, um, and so we're not, a, we're not a nation of immigrants unless, unless you have in your experience, I don't mean like this constructed identity you have, but if in your experience you have the sense of being an immigrant such that you are out of place, like an immigrant in a different different country is in a way out of place, even if it's very, they're, they're a great, you know, they're, they're great neighbors and great people and all that. So I'm not saying it's, you're still going to be out of place. Like you said, going to China, like if you go to China, you're going to be out of place if you try to live there uh, and you're going to know it. You're going to have that experience of being out of place. Um, but if you don't have that experience of being out of place, then you're not an immigrant. And and if that's the majority of people in the country, then we're not a nation of immigrants. And I think that's just it's obvious. It's a, the nation of immigrants idea is this is just a way to perpetuate the the um, the, 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 the the increased flow of immigration to the country. And it doesn't actually work logically. Just because there was a, a, a there people came 100, um, 150, 100 years ago. Uh, from from Europe and and there was a uh, kind of this sort of ethnogenesis that occurred in World War II era and afterwards. That doesn't mean that therefore we that has to be a continued pro- policy that we'd have to continually kind of in a way you know quote unquote refresh ourselves with, with new immigrants from other places. That, that's uh, it doesn't it doesn't logically follow from the fact that we had a policy in the past that therefore therefore we should continue that policy. And also the okay. I mean, go yeah, go ahead. I was going to well, say. I mean, I, I, I mean, also that there was there was uh, um, where why, why do we? What's the the reason? I mean, so if you think about the the, the policies for immigration in the past, um, which were largely um, European based immigration, that uh, th- there was a sense in which that there was a demand for the workers as from a, from an economy that was liberalizing. And, uh, but, but now it's, there are, now it's a matter of, well, we need gardeners and stuff um, and that sort of thing. And and it's like to do the sort of labor we could once do ourselves. And also we have extremely low unemployment, which, so it's, it's actually good for the the workers themselves. And of course the capitalists want, um, want high immigration to suppress wages and wage growth. Um, And uh, it's, I think that our, our commitment should be to the people who are our citizens here and not, not this, this kind of universalistic conception that we are like, like Americans have this idea and this flows from in part, like a um, conservatives as well. Like you see this in Reagan's farewell address, this idea that we are like this beacon of hope to the world. We're like the universal country that everyone who has, I get everyone who's suffering outside the world now comes here and we, we help them. And so it's like we're the universal country, and I'm my part of my like point of the book is to say no, we got to we have to cut that out, um, and okay. start thinking about the people here themselves, and that, and um, and go from there. 
you've appealed to three different things, time, events, and experience, right? So just a second ago, you said, well, the immigrants uh, that we're talking about are you know over 100 something years old. Um, earlier, you talked about kind of events that might bind you or shared experiences. How do you rank these in determining what makes this this nationalistic group that you're referring to? Is 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 there a, is there a priority? Is it an examination to see how they're composed? Um, because part of the issue that we have in the country is trying to determine um, how much time has elapsed before we can move on past something. You know what was a significant uh, a significant event and what wasn't. Um, you know who actually has shared experiences. So all these things are tied into what makes an American. Um, and, and you seem to be distinguishing by saying that these things are um, ways we, we we can understand who makes up um, a nationalistic group. So do, do you have a way to rank them or a way to examine them? So if someone wants to go, hey, you know, how do I determine w- what makes up these groups? Um, is, there a, is there a ranking here? Um. You mean like groups within the United States, that kind of thing? or Well, I mean, I'm thinking about like this. So a minute ago you said, well, the immigrant argument is really more of an older historical argument, right? And so if you took if you took two things, you said, well, New York immigration primarily, and I'm making this up for an example, uh, example happened in 1850, um, and 9-11 happened in 2001. Um, so you, and one thing I think you'd say is that the more recent event um, is, is pertinent. So – while immigration might have been something that's happened to New York over time, um, it's it's a longer time, and the and the peak was a long time ago. So therefore, it's less relevant um, compared to this near event. Or if you had a group of people who moved to a local settlement, um, oh, you know they're 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 traveling, and then they just, they start to kind of come together. Um, they have very little time, but a plague hits. They're going to have a very strong shared experience. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand how you sort through. Um, which one of these things, or, or is there a way to sort through which one of these things is most important in determining um, what makes up this nationalistic group? Uh, I mean, that, that's, I guess it's a good question. I, I, I would, like I, my my sense is that uh, is is that there? Yeah, it would be kind of a common experience or struggle, oh, like events. I think that would probably be the, the most important. I, I do think there has to be a common, I mean, if you don't, if you don't speak the same language, uh, I mean, let's say that you have in a, like you have a military unit and one, one unit is composed of people who speak Spanish and the other one is people who speak English. I think you can have a sort of, uh, and, and, you, and you fight together, you know, uh, in either each in your separate unit, the same enemy, that that I mean, you don't speak the same language, so you can't actually have civil fellowship properly because you can't deliberate together. I mean, that's the. Well, I mean, what is civil fellowship except a deliberation over over how to enact the good, right? Um, and if you can't do that, you can't actually have civil fellowship. So, but I, I you can have a sort of common brotherhood that's uh, that that's. Uh, I mean, like you mentioned before. Yeah, like so, like World War Two, because we fought with the French and the British and and these other guys that, that there was a sort of common brotherhood formed uh, between each other, but that doesn't mean we became the same, you know, nation state or country. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, so I, I think there would have to be still an underlying cultural similarity. Again, I'd peel the Federals too, and George Washington's farewell address that, that even though they do both mention the common struggle, 
uh, in, in forming a kind of a nation, they also include similar cultural similarities like language and religion and, and, uh, manners at, you know, all, all being common as a way to kind of form people together. So, uh, and, and that, and that I mean, that's one of, that's one of the fears is like, is that in our country, would we ever able, would we, able, could we have a common struggle that would unify us? Because, uh, that doesn't appear to be enough to simply just have a struggle. You'd have to have some basic cultural similarity of some respect. Um, so, yeah, I, I, so I don't know. I, I guess I can't. I can't. The... <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say the cultural similarity then is not a racial component. It is all of these other components. And so part of the, the, the critique I think that you were saying earlier is people are, or presuming the racial aspect and you're saying, well, there's, I'm picking up a number here. There's five, 10, 15 indicators I'm looking at. Um, and perhaps these people are of different race or, or the same race, but, but it's, it's actually, you could take for argument's sake, um, two white people. One speaks French is a socialist, um, is an atheist is, you know, list all these things. And the ones, uh, white is a Protestant is a, and it lists all these things. And, and, and what you're saying is that, that the differences there, um, are, are the issue. It's not, so you could change the races of the people and you'd still have the same problem. Um, the race isn't the overarching thing. Um, it's, it's all these other indicators. Is, is that accurate or does race make up a component? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think ra- race and in, in our common, ex- in our, I mean, you say like, ra- like questions like, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean by race? Um, first of all, so it's, they, I like to tell a story of a, a guy I knew um, when I lived in Baton Rouge and he was an Asian guy. Uh, he was Chinese, but he's been around. He'd been, and I, I think he was like second or third generation or something like that. If you talk to the guy on the phone, you'd think he was a Cajun. Uh, like, a, and you meet him in person. It's actually kind of funny and we joke about it, but, but he was like, he's the sort of guy who uh, even though he had some like ties to China in a sense, because he, I get his parents own like a Chinese restaurant and all that, but, um, but he was, uh, he, he belonged as someone who's not from Louisiana. He belonged in Louisiana more than I did. And I'm, you know, I'm a white guy. Um, so it, I, I couldn't, yeah, this, this is why like the, the kinists don't like me because I tell that story. They don't like that story. I've, I've told it before. Um, and the, the people who think I'm a kinist, <laughs> It's also funny. Like my, my two harshest critics are kinists and people who think I'm a kinist. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so in that sense, like yeah, his his ancestral. So when I I don't use the word race because I think it's ambiguous, but I I say like ancestral background or ancestral ties. His his ancestry leads him back to China, but in terms of uh, in terms of where he is from, he is he's more he's he's. He's more my people than um, certainly like some some British guy, uh, like some British white guy, you know, um, not not all British white guys, I guess, but some of them I can think some of them or French. I mean, so if I had to like if I had to pick teams between, uh, you know, some uh, some modern German and. Uh, and Jason is his name. I choose Jason every time. Uh, and, yeah. and so, but, but the thing is, it's not because we, uh, because he lived two miles down the road from me. That's not it. There are people who live two miles down the road from me, went to Baton Rouge, who I would say is my outgroup. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's because they didn't speak English, to be honest with you. So, um, and then there were some Muslims and all that. So, but this guy, he was a, he was a Christian um, and uh, he's culturally similar to me, had some unique aspects like everyone does, but he's, he's my people more than mm-hmm. other people. Um, and it's not geograph- geographic space. It's this sort of similarities. And he's the kind of guy, not, not just because he's a good guy, but be, he's the kind of guy who said, this is my country. This is my land. And he, Again, I always use the foxhole because I, I can, I think it's a good, it's the, think of the foxhole is a good way to think of who's going to cut and run and who's going to be there and stick it next to you and fight back. And when you think yeah. about oh. that and you're honest with yourself, a lot of people are going to cut and run and go back to their own, their, uh, another country. Jason's not going back to China. <laughs> Let me tell you. Oh. Um and so he is, he's just as much my people as my white neighbor who would be next to us in the foxhole as well. So, um, but at the same time, like what I just said, I just said people cut and run. And that's absolutely the case if you're honest with yourself. And so I think that, but so we should be in, in a way, um, be able to distinguish who, who is one of us, who is part of your sort of in group and who's not. And it makes people uncomfortable, but I think you just have to do it. Everyone else in the world does it. But um, I think we should do well, it as well. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the point on race is, is it's tough because if you've traveled um, abroad, and I'm not a globe trotter, but I've been to Africa, I've been to China, I've been to Africa multiple times, um, and in Central America, what you find is is that the way we talk about the race in the U.S. is mainly a white, black, and brown type conversation. If you go to somewhere like Africa, it's more of a tribal type conversation, um, and so yeah. and so it, that shifts the things. And so part of what you're seeing would be framed perhaps maybe not from your perspective, but if we were talking about it at, at large um, in an African or maybe I haven't been to South America, but um, you, you might would phrase it differently because you'd say, well, the, as far as race is concerned, the races are all the same uh, as far as uh, in, in this particular country. Um, and so the racial aspect doesn't necessarily work well um, outside of the U S particularly. And so in the U S we have a weird way of thinking about race and making everything racial. Um, and, and, and it seems that more, Ethnic groups is a more apt way to um, to distinguish if you were if you were somewhere else, and so that, that makes it tough because to your point, you have to take this conversation and say it's not just an American issue. This is you know you're, you said you're a Christian nationalist, so theoretically you would argue this would be good for any nation, um, and so any nation would have this issue. And how you talk about that in some other parts of the world would not be to use these um, you know, um, race as the as the overarching indicator. It'd be it'd be other. Um, yeah, it would be so ethnic, ethnic thing. So just, just to like, uh, one of the interesting things, so I, um, in the last couple of months or so, I was, I spent some time with Hungarians in the United States, not Hungarian Americans, but Hungarians. And they, they do, they're doing advocacy work for Hungarians and um, not just Hungary. And this was, this was interesting is they kept talking about like identity, this identity, that. And these people, they, uh, a few of them, their big interest was trying to tell the foreign policy establishment in D.C. that there are ethnic Hungarians in neighboring countries uh, who are, tra- are being treated poorly. So there's ethnic Hungarians in Ukraine, uh, in Romania, and Slovakia, I think, was the other country. Uh, and to an American mindset, it's like, okay, well, shouldn't they just – the, the the Ukrainians, excuse me, shouldn't the Hungarians in Slovakia become Slovakian? Shouldn't the Hungarians in Ukraine become Ukrainians? Right? 
and Romania become Romanian. And there's, you know, there's religious divi- divisions, very, very interesting, but like, that's our mindset is that, well, you live in this nation state, you should assimilate. And, but their mindset is completely different. What they want is actually minority rights. They say, not only that, they want a sort of quasi autonomy. They want the Hungarians within Slovakia to have quasi autonomy to order themselves. So they're, they're actually tremendously ethnically self-aware and want separation between the two. And my point is not to say that America should be like that. My point is that like most people in the world have that sense. They have this very us, them mindset, not necessarily, not necessarily built in animosity or hatred. It can actually Mm -hmm. be very friendly, but there is this like more sense of us, them. And we in the United States and the West generally are very, very weird about that. It makes us uncomfortable. But here's Central Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, and they have a very defined, um, uh, significant, uh, and they have no qualms about it. Like us, it makes us uncomfortable. Like, why don't you just assimilate? Uh, but no, they actually say, and I actually asked the dumb question. To I asked one guy, I was like, so why don't you guys just like assimilate? And I knew it was a dumb question, but I just wanted to hear what he had to, had to say in response. And he treated it like it was a dumb question <laughs> to him. Why? Um, and he said, well, and I was like, and I was like, well, so they, they just want to be, you know, he basically answered like, well, because they don't want to, they're Hungarians. They don't, they don't want to, that's, that's there. It's a dumb question to him. Um, but to us, it actually makes some sense. Uh, so uh, but the, the point being, again, is that like, that, like we are, like, I think the pointing out that we're, we're weird and that we, when we have this moral reaction to trying to make distinctions between peoples, we should really just reflect on the fact that we're weird. <laughs> like, instead of criticizing me for being racist, like, criticize like yourself for being weird um <laughs> uh anyway so i'm but i'll just i'll just leave it at that okay so um just a couple of rapid fire questions here or i say rapid fire just uh shorter answer questions we have about 10 minutes left um people hearing this go okay listen i'm not a christian but i'm familiar with jesus and jesus is about love kindness acceptance here you are saying that we shouldn't uh take people who are coming from some of the most impoverished parts of the world uh, and give them opportunity. How do you justify that as a Christian? Yeah. So, I mean, the, um, the, the role of a, well, first of all, I should say that uh, a nation should be hospitable. Of course, Um, a nation should be hospitable, Uh, but at the same, just like a family should be hospitable. So um, families, um, when, when, when someone, you know, uh, or perhaps anyone, but just that when someone, you know, is on hard times, you ought to help them, um, but uh, at the same time, you don't do it to your your family's detriment. Are you going to put your kids on the streets because you helped all the poor people around you and you lost you lost everything, and now you are on the streets with them? <laughs> so, uh, so obviously, I think most people would would agree that families do not have the obligation to destroy themselves to help others, and I think the nation is the same sense that we should be hospitable. Uh, we should not. Um, deny help to others, but, uh, but we, we are not obligated to destroy ourselves. Um, uh, and because we, yeah, to, to help, uh, outsiders. And okay. this, this includes the, not just our duties to ourselves, but our duties to our, our, our ancestors, our, our, um, the, the dead, like in the Burkean sense, the dead living and unborn. So we have duties to the dead and we have duties to the unborn. 
and uh we it, it would be like yeah it would be like a young a young couple ex- expecting children uh and but they destroy themselves financially so that their their child is born in the street um and so i think that the same same thing with the nation that there's a duty for hospitality we have a higher duty to those who are most bound and close to you and this is this is something reflected throughout the tradition augustine says it aquinas says it all the protestants the protestant reformers say it you have a higher duty to those who were close and bound to you in the in your immediate vicinity than you are to the abstract foreigner and that's okay. that these are these guys are all quoted in the book by the way <laughs> okay. who has been the best critic of your work um Uh, well, uh, I think that the one, the, ironically enough, it's the one guy who accused me of being Nietzschean, <laughs> um, uh, John Ehrlich. I, I forget how to say his last name. He, it's from American reformer. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, so, I mean, there, there, there've been other reviews that I think are, were just not good. Um, but they, they, they appeal to a certain like ignorant, um, base, I think, but I, I think his, even though I disagree with it. I think it, it, it kind of, it, I feel like I got the sense that he understood what I was going for better, even though it was in the end critical. Hmm. I think he understood more of what I was getting at. These these other guys uh, were more reactive and, uh, and other things, but so. Okay. Um, in Christian thought, there are a lot of ways um, that Christians espouse, you know, how to engage the culture. Um and I think, um, at least in the circles that you'd run in, um, you maybe have like a two kingdom theology, a theonomy, uh, you know, something like theonomy or reconstruction. Um, where do you land and what are some of the problems with some of those other, um, positions? Yeah. So I'm, I'm thoroughly two kingdoms. Uh, and, uh, what's unfortunate about me saying that is the first thing people think is like Michael Horton and David Van Drunen and these other guys. Uh, the problem is, is more of, um, of understanding two kingdoms is a matter of history and because the people who recovered it misunderstood it and used it to pacify Christians. So that's what Van Drunen does and Horton. They say, Oh, we're just recovering what the reformers thought, but we're just, we're just making it more coherent and correcting it. But that's, that's not, that's not true. Um, and it's been shown so many times that Van Drunen misunderstood uh, the, his, the, the reform tradition on this, but um, everyone, everyone prior to 20th century was two kingdoms. I know that's a bold claim, but I think that's, I, I would defend it <laughs> over and over. Um, that, that doesn't mean they agreed on what the nature of the two kingdoms. So like Richard Hooker and someone like uh, Sam Rutherford would disagree on what the two kingdoms are, but they all affirm two kingdoms um, in some respect. And so that's, that's where I'm coming from. And I, and I think that's the right way to go because uh, when you have two kingdoms, it means that you the the nature of the heavenly kingdom is then not uh, trans is not uh, a project for us to transform the world because this means that so like the uh, you know like there's no Greek or Jew there's no male or female there's no master slave that then uh, which I to my mind is referring to the spiritual kingdom and not the earthly kingdom. Um, when you keep those separate, it means that you don't have this, this leveling egalitarian project. And in, in a way I'd say the modern Christian uh, and the, the neo-Calvinist transformationalism is a collapse of the two kingdoms where they're I think, incoherently trying to recreate like or 
create heaven on earth um, with a with a collapse of the two kingdoms. But it's a, so I think two kingdoms theology it allows you to maintain the relation of the sexes so between men and women and um, women. I think it preserves marriage first uh, that and then uh, also these other other distinctions and hierarchies. Um, so they uh, yeah like, like the, theonomy itself like I'm opposed I'm opposed to theonomy for the, for the same way that that uh, Calvin and all those guys were as well. So but really a lot of the 20 I, I just part I I think we should get away from a lot of the, the 20, 20th century innovations of the theonomy and and neo-calvinism transformationalism and just go back to the I I I prefer that I that the debates would be between go back to a, a sort of Anglican versus Presbyterian debate over, uh, over political theology, um, of, of like the 16th, 17th century. Okay. I know and these then, are rapid fire uh, questions, but my answers are not rapid. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. Um, will you be doing any debates? Um, uh, obviously this has been a controversial topic. As I said, we started, um, you've had critics from all over, um, Christendom and non-Christendom and all of the spectrum say, Hey, this is what's wrong. Uh, you've kind of pointed out um, from your perspective what they've missed. Will you be doing any, any public debates? Uh, so no one has, no one has, uh, well, there, there is one, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a debate, but I do have an event scheduled with Paul Miller uh, in DC okay. in uh, February. Um, and I guess I'll put out more information. I don't have all the information right now, uh, but yeah, I, I don't think um, I haven't been invited to debate. Uh, with anyone. I, I think that in part that's because the, this is reflected most of the reviews is that the review is that the reviews are uh, very moral, morally denouncing. Um, and so it's like the, it's like the reviews, it's like, okay, this book is popular. A lot of people are reading it and I need to signal to my crowd that I will not stand for it. And so, but then to debate it is to make it even more public. So I, I think a lot of people, so you have like the, like the neo-Calvinists and some of the Baptists, and then you have like the, the Davenant crowd um, that they, they've got their reviews in to signal to their crowd that, okay, they've, yeah, we reject this and it's out. So I don't think they want to reignite a debate. I haven't actually invited anyone to debate yet, but uh, I guess, I, I guess that might be, it might be something to do on the horizon that, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind talking to someone like Kevin DeYoung if you want mm. to do something like that. But, but again, a lot of these people don't may not want to share the stage with a quote unquote racist. And so <laughs> they, they don't want to, well, that, yeah. that's why we created the war room to have on people from yeah. all sorts of perspectives, whether we agree or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we appreciate your time today. Where should we send people to obviously link to the book um, website, social media, where do you want people to go to connect with you if they have questions or what if all your, work? Um, I mean, just, just go on, on, on Twitter. Twitter's good. Uh, I mean, you search my Twitter's name. Good. It's Twitter, Twitter's not good. <laughs> Twitter's oh, yeah, no, it's, it's not I have good, a love hate no. relationship with Twitter. Okay. I love it. And I hate it all at the same time, but anyways, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, uh, Twitter search my name. Uh, it's, it's perfect. Just, I'm not going to spell it out, but you'll see it. Perfect. Just it's, me standing over my dominion in the, in the, the picture there. So, um, okay. We will yeah, link to that in it. the show notes for the listeners. We'll link to the book as well. Um, Stephen, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on.